From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, March 11th. Four Corners Canine Search and Rescue is the latest organization helping Native families find missing loved ones. They operate mostly in the Navajo Nation, where resources for rescue are spare. Justin Higginbottom spoke with the founder of the group about what she and her two dogs find in the deserts of this region. Bernadine Bial has been working in search and rescue for six years, and she says it's all thanks to her dog. Actually, it's all because of my dog, Trigger. So I got him, and the lady we had got him from, she said, if you, if I was interested in an obedience class, that there's this class on weekends. So I started taking Trigger when he was eight weeks old. He started catching on to a lot of things. The lady that taught the class said that, you know, your dog's catching on. He's very smart. If you're interested, would you guys want to join Search and Rescue? He just was so smart that he caught on to all the exercises we did for air scenting, live find. Eventually, a couple years ago, he and I started working on human remains. She's based out of Farmington and soon found herself working with the New Mexico Badlands Search and Rescue Team. While working in the area, she was approached by families looking for their missing. A lot of them lived on the Navajo Nation and Bial's Navajo and knows how resources there are stretched thin. Navajo Nation police don't yet have a canine unit dedicated to search and rescue, although there are at least a couple of other dog-assisted teams working in the area. The demand is still high for help. My phone number started getting passed around, so I started getting these requests from families. So this past year, 2021 summer, was very busy. We were all over the place, me, Trigger, and the new dog I have, Gunny. My job is to pay attention to them. You know, I'm watching their motions. I'm watching their tail. I'm watching their ears. I'm watching their nose. I'm watching everything they do. And it's hard because it's two of them. So I'm trying to keep up with those two. Families in the Four Corners area are often left to search for their loved ones themselves. But it takes resources like gas money and time. And without training, those searching can end up contaminating an area. That's why I wanted to do this to help law enforcement out, to help these families out, because at least we could try to get there in a timely manner, get things going, get a command center set up and teach these families on what the process is for a missing person. The person could have left clues, like maybe their shoe, their saw, a piece of clothing, water bottle, and families end up picking these items up and taking it back home, you know? So, and that, that's the education piece of this, trying to tell them, you know, don't touch anything, leave it there. Try not to go into the area until dogs get there. It's usually only Bial and a couple of volunteers searching a large and wild area. They tailor their methods depending on what kind of call they get. Are we going to do a grid search? Are we going to do a hasty search? Are we going to do a tight search? It all depends on what type of area you're in and the person. So, you know, if it's an elderly and they have health issues, we're really not going to have time to plan like a tight search. We're going to go more hasty search where we're like, let's get out there. Let's find the clues. Oh, here's footprints. Let's start working from those footprints right away. She finds all sorts of things in the desert. Sometimes she wonders how they got all the way out there. Shirts and bottles and bones. Cow bones, coyote bones, and human bones. She says she's found remains on three out of her ten searches since January. The real hard, difficult part we run into is when it comes to bones because you have animal bones and you have human bones. So that's another piece of search and rescue that I really had to learn a lot quickly. 
Biel works a full-time job, Monday through Friday. She leaves at 5 a.m. and drives 40 minutes to reach work, so she can only search on the weekends or her days off. But she still finds time for operations, like a search of the Blue Mountains outside of Monticello back in November. Now she's looking to expand and train those interested in search and rescue in the Four Corners area, including in Utah. She says there's still a lot of ground to cover. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. Young people from tribes linked to the Grand Canyon can spend a week rafting down the Colorado River this summer. Emma Gibson of the Mountain West News Bureau has more on the trip's deeper intentions. The idea for this free trip began out of the high cost of recreation in the canyon. Organizers think that it excludes many indigenous people from visiting. Amber Benali is with the Grand Canyon Trust, one of the hosts of the trip. She says the canyon is culturally significant to a host of tribes, and she wants participants to understand they have a place in conservation. Native people have always been conservationists. They've always been soil scientists. They've always been environmental advocates. And I want young Native people to know that their identity itself is an asset to this field. The 16 applicants will be joined by elders from different tribes. And the group's interests will steer where they visit and what stories they share. The application is on the Grand Canyon Trust website. The deadline is Friday, March 18th. I'm Emma Gibson. A new reservoir is taking shape in the Colorado River Basin in the hills above Loveland, Colorado. Proponents of the build say it's an investment in the future of a growing region, the Front Range. But critics say it's going to add strain to an already taxed watershed. KUNC's Alex Hager visited the construction site to learn more about this new reservoir in the basin. We are standing at the bottom of the soon-to-be reservoir, and this place is a teeming construction site. There are trucks moving in every direction, trucks that I've never seen before, drilling and moving dirt and hauling rock away. It is a really busy site. There's a lot going on here. I was one of those kids who was really into trucks, and the Tonka-loving toddler in me was in awe at the bulldozers, dump trucks, and excavators so big they could dig the foundation of a house in just three scoops. Joe Donnelly is the project manager. To build this dam where we're hauling or filling 100-ton trucks, and we need to haul a load of rock, place on the dam every two minutes, uh, five days a week, uh, for two and a half years. You can probably tell by now, this build is huge. And as project engineer Jeremy Dudo says, it's a lot more than just digging a hole in the ground. Seeing it on plans and seeing pictures of it doesn't really do it justice until you're here standing at the bottom, looking up 350 feet to the top of the dam, 100 feet below where original ground was. Amid the bustle of enormous yellow trucks, we're gazing up past hard hats and piles of dirt, up to the tops of dusty red cliffs that will someday loom over the dam that creates this giant man-made lake. Up there, a perch by the edge provides a view of how far the reservoir will sprawl. Looking out over the chasm, you can understand why this project is so expensive. The reservoir here at Chimney Hollow is going to cost about $500 million. And so when you break that over the four-year construction span, it ends up being $340,000 a day, every day, for the next four years. 
Jeff Stela is a spokesman for Northern Water, the agency running this site. The project is taking more than 20 years to get permitted and built. Stela says it's needed for rapid growth in cities including Broomfield, Loveland, and Greeley. This is going to be a water source in northern Colorado in well into the 21st century. We're thinking generationally and decades down the road with this. Stela says the future is rife with uncertainty, and this reservoir is designed to store water as insurance for the dry times. But if you look farther upstream, Jen Pels with the conservation group Wild Earth Guardians says there's an even deeper uncertainty about how long the water will last. Spending a bunch of money on a reservoir when you don't have the water to fill it is kind of silly. I heard someone have had a great quote around a refrigerator that's empty doesn't do a lot of good to solve you know, someone's hunger crisis. Colorado is built on moving water around. In this state, about 80% of the water falls on the west side of the mountains. But about 80% of its people live on the east side. With more than two decades of drought straining the Colorado River, which provides so much of that water, some are pushing back on new infrastructure that could strain it even further. Ken Fusick is vice president of the Upper Colorado River Watershed Group. When is enough enough? When are we going to say, or is it every drop of water that is up here will go down to the front range. You can't continue to add population without providing them water. We will all recognize that. But where's that water going to come from? There's only so much. We are a finite resource. Fusick says straining that finite resource where it starts can cause real tangible harm, like algae blooms and threats to the economies that depend on water for recreation. And those same gripes are likely to be brought up against any future proposed reservoirs on the Front Range. As more people move to the area and demand more water, will they be able to get it? Again, Jeff Stela with Northern Water. If we're going to be able to um, exist and, and offer the, the same opportunities to our children and grandchildren on the Front Range, we should consider, and we're doing it here, capture the water when it's available so that we have flexibility in those years when we don't have it. But it'll be a while before Chimney Hollow has the chance to do that. Four more years of construction, three years of filling it with water, and unpredictable changes to the climate and drought stand between today and this water finding its way to Front Range faucets. In Loveland, Colorado, I'm Alex Hager. And now the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. A motorized vehicle advocacy group plus over a dozen local ATV companies are challenging the city and county over their noise ordinances and other regulations. They filed a notice of claim against the bodies last week. Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent has more from their coverage. All right. As Sophia mentioned last week, we had a notice of claim filed against Grand County and the city of Moab from uh, over a dozen local OHV companies that rent out and give tours on on, uh, ATVs, OHVs and an advocacy group out of Pocatello, Idaho. And the notice of claim, basically, it's an effort to resolve an issue before you seek the assistance of the court Mm. in in deciding it. And this targets um, noise regulations. So what's going to happen is the the county and the city are going to have to look at their uh, rules. They they both changed them significantly. Their noise ordinances, Mm -hmm. they changed them significantly. 
And this, of course, ties into House Bill 146, which strips counties and cities from most of the regulatory authority they have uh, over these businesses and uh, the people who operate these machines. The big issue in in, in Moab and in Grand County is is not the machines themselves or the people who ride them. It's that they're ridden through neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So they're uh, impacting the quality of life and even people's health Mm -hmm. uh, in, in some instances, I'm sure. Maybe it's time for the court to decide not only um, the noise regulations, but all the other regulations that the city and the county mm. um, have put on the books in recent years to uh, to combat uh, the noise and the distraction that, that these um, machines cause. Now, something I'm, I'm hoping we can touch on, like you just said, you know, the legislation HB 146 deals with the ability of you know, local political organizations like Moab City and Grand County to regulate ATV-related businesses um, in, the, in the way that Grand County has been doing. The lawsuit does, you know, talk about those issues, but it also pertains to the noise ordinance. Um, I just noticed that Moab City put out this big statement related to their noise ordinance, and I'm wondering, where does that fit in? I'm, I'm not really sure where it fits in. Yeah. I, I do believe that I know I know that language was softened because uh-huh. of um, just really um, frenetic last-minute lobbying by Grand County Attorney Christina Sloan and County Commissioners uh, Carly at the city, the, the uh, interim city manager. Uh, they were all on the phone because that last week was just a flurry of bills getting passed around like ping pong balls back and forth. So it only prohibits unreasonable noise ordinances. Well, unreasonable is a big word. Mm. It's what's unreasonable to one person might not be right. unreasonable to another. The, these conversations, like you you mentioned at the top, like they may get answers in court. Right. I am one of the, one of the things that I think needs to be clarified for a lot of people is I keep hearing the word discrimination mm-hmm. um, from these advocacy groups and the people that are uh, that ride the the machines, and I, I don't know if they're a protected class, and I don't know if they're really can be discriminated against. There's no federal law regarding right. these. So You were um, not born as an ATV. Yeah, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? So, it's not your race, gender, sexuality, yeah, any of that. Yeah, yeah, we don't need to worry about discrimination. This is, um, uh, do you have the right to do what you want to do at the expense of people who would rather not have their quiet use and enjoyment of their homes interrupted by mm-hmm. by the drone of, of OHVs. And I think that's what lawmakers are missing, Molly, in this, is none of them really live here. They don't mm-hmm. really know what it's like. And we're just a bunch of crybaby hippies um, in Moab who uh, just whine about everything mm-hmm. as far as they're concerned. You know, so this notice of claim, like you explained, is um, not... A lawsuit. It's just a heads up. We may intend to sue. Yeah, if we can't settle this, we will. We will be in court. So, do we have? Do we know what the next steps are? We do. The county and city have sixty days to respond and either resolve it or head to court. Okay. Thank you, Doug, for uh-huh. walking us through that. Where do you want to take us next? Water report. There's a lot of uh, white stuff on uh, the LaSalle Mountains this week, thanks to some some uh, storms that passed through. Really brief on the valleys, but they, they dumped quite a bit uh, up top. 
But the state has been really dry since January 1st. We had a really um, wet end to um, mm. 2021, so to speak. We were way above um, where we are projected, you know, at, at that time. But since January 1st, it's been markedly dry in Utah, Yeah, which means that, um, you know, our reservoirs are down, water saturation is down. Lamont Peak, that's in the Wasatch, Wasatch Mountains, okay. I believe, north of Ogden. They normally have nine, almost 10 inches of snowfall, uh, according to the Snowtail site there, uh, in the month of February. Mm-hmm. They didn't even get an inch this February. Jaden Clayton, uh, the report's author, he, he made it clear that um, you know, this is how serious it is, 10 inches to not even an inch. Okay. So uh, if we don't have... A very wet March, we're not going to be hitting our our, uh, our targets for runoff come April and May when the snow starts melting. Okay, so this is another um, abysmal water lookout, I guess. Yeah, it is. Um, the good news, if there's any good news, and it's small good news no matter what, uh, we're doing okay in southeast Utah. Okay. Uh, we're at 91% of uh, average. We were at 118%. February 1st, but since then, we're, we're down to under 100, but still, that's better than the 67% we were at this time last year. All right, so this, of course, is important looking at snowpack now because we can predict, perhaps, what drought conditions might look like later in the year. Yeah. Anywhere else you want to take us in the TI this week, Doug? Yes, they're looking for proposals to provide uh, a transit service. The original plan was just to have like a part-time van and a part-time driver. Mm-hmm. But then we got a whole lot of American Rescue Plan uh, uh, Corona dollars, as people like to call them. And so now they got like a million dollars additional in the budget, according to um, Chuck Williams. So they're going to spend about 1.5, almost $1.6 million, uh, from the Department of uh, Transportation, another $1 million from the federal uh uh, Transit Authority, it's going to allow them to uh, budget this plan for about five years. And uh, the new alternative budget, if you will, is going to provide a better transit service. Um, people will be able to uh, to get to City Market and get out all the way to uh, Osta. This is something that Moem City has been talking about for some time. Yep. Um, and so this is going to be a city-led project. Is that right? Yes. Do we know anything about a timeline yet? We we know that they're going to go out for proposals. Okay. And they're going to entertain proposals from locals as well. You know, across the country. The way that it's written is the burden is almost going to be entirely on whoever that vendor turns out to be Mm -hmm. you know storing the buses maintaining the route all that stuff is going to be on the vendor Mm -hmm. Uh, so taxpayers won't be stuck with that but Mm -hmm. um you know mass transit public transit being what it is uh, i've never met one yet that didn't need to be subsidized but we're not we're not talking about a big bus route we're talking about a couple of vans doug mcmurdo editor at the times independent subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com Moab City is exploring a public-private partnership to build workforce housing on Walnut Lane. This process starts with a request for proposals from potential partners and could mark a shift in tone toward the affordable development. Maggie McGuire of the Moab Sun News has more from their coverage. On the Walnut Lane story, that project, um, which I think began very ambitiously, is sort of, it feels a little bit like it's limping limping yeah. along mm-hmm. and and everyone is hopeful that it'll get better 
Um, but also, I think everyone is being really realistic that um, mm-hmm. if something doesn't change really soon, um, that the, the city sort of wants to just kind of cut its losses. This was the first time that I'm aware of that um, city staff sort of, you know, presented the council with, you know, a few different options mm-hmm. of like what they could do, paths they could explore. Yeah. And the fourth option for the first time that I'm remembering it was to initiate sale of the property, yeah, which would be moving away from their uh, initial dream of doing an affordable workforce housing project there. Yeah. And I think that this was, you know, a really hopeful project and it is, it's not exactly um, pie in the sky either, because this is a, a format that, you know, um, has worked in other places. Of course, the city council this week decided not to initiate sale, but they yes. went down another path. Um, we just mm-hmm. pointed that out because it was notable. It definitely is notable um, because it's sort of, I think, has been the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. I guess, let's say. So, you know, the first time that someone points at it and, you know, says, should we talk about that elephant? Mm-hmm. Definitely notable. Sure. So they're going out to see public-private partnerships. Anything to say there about that? You know, it is um, a format that has worked. I believe that's how Park City has done this in the past. So there's a little bit more guidance there. There's a, like a trail to follow mm-hmm. um, because in some ways, Walnut Lane... I think, suffered from sort of turnover, you know? Even though there were plans in place, there wasn't, like, kind of a consistent person. There wasn't a a vision. Um, There was, like, you know, a rough outline and Mm -hmm. a definite, like, place, like, here's where we want to go. But with something of such complexity, the more complex a project is, you know, the more fragile it can be, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Um, Anything else to mention about the MOBS and these coverage of Walnut Lane this week? I'd say we're also seeing, you know, at the the same sort of city council discussions, you know, trying to to narrow down policy also on what does workforce housing mean, you know, how that relates to affordable housing. Um, And these are sort of like decisions that people are making with the, the best information that they have, you know. But we're not always able to see the future, basically, how these decisions play out in really complex systems. And I think that that's really fascinating here in Moab. We're seeing that all the time. More coverage, of course, of Walnut Lane in the Moab Sun News this week. Um, Maggie, I'm hoping you can take us to another article, one that relates to the county and all of the job switching that has been happening. Sure. And I think it's really related to what we were talking about. You know, something that I think is really interesting about the form of government at both the city and county is the importance of sort of institutional staff. Elections and elected officials get all the attention. But, you know, usually the policy that is getting written um, and enacted at, at both the city and county um, is through the, like these these fairly powerful staff positions. Mm. So there was some turnover or really job switching mm-hmm. um, that has happened in recent um, weeks. What's going on there? Well, the county sort of is almost restructuring itself um, slowly. I think one of the biggest um, switcheroos right now is the departure from Graham County Commission of, of Gabe Wojtek, who right now I believe is, isn't he the chair? Yeah, he was sitting chair, yeah. Yeah, um, so he's decided to move over into um, an interim position as the, the county clerk auditor. So he'll be serving out this term and will be up for um, re-election into that position. 
but that leaves an empty spot on the commission which we're presuming they'll probably deal with this week. Yeah, assuming this Tuesday, yeah, this coming Tuesday. <laughs> yes. So um, Gabe Waitek has moved into the clerk auditor position, mm-hmm. as you just explained, leaving a vacancy at the mm-hmm. county commission. Um, so they need someone to serve the remainder of that term. Mm-hmm. And then the position of clerk auditor, of course, was open because um, our clerk auditor, sure. Quinn Hall, exited to take a different admin position mm-hmm. in the county. Right. And previous to that, I believe just a year or two ago, uh, Chris Baird, who was the, the clerk auditor, moved into a, the county administrator role. And he now has moved on to a newly created role, strategic development director, mm-hmm. um, sort of created almost seemingly specific to, to him. Um, and he was replaced in that position um, by Mallory Nassau. So these are, you know, folks who have been involved in the county for a long time. And so it's sort of just not quite a game of musical chairs, but these are significant changes, especially um, when we're focusing on, as we were talking about with Walnut Lane, these long-term policies, mm-hmm. you know, being able to not just draft an ordinance, but also, you know, have the institutional knowledge to, to be able to draw upon things that have already been tried and also to be able to evaluate like, okay, we know how this was written. I was there. Is this playing out as we hoped it would? So did reporter Rachel Fixon, you know, reach out to any of these county staff? Any comments from them? Yeah, folks who are being moved around are pretty open uh, about all of this. It's like, you know, not not super weird um, to mm-hmm. a lot of them because, you know, the county is actually still quite small. Yeah. So even though these might seem like quite large changes, it's you know, often moving to like a desk, two desks away. Sure. Um, And still working with, you know, the same people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the folks that she talked to were pretty positive about the impact that these changes are going to make going forward. But also we're, you know, like we're talking about, pretty mindful of prioritizing institutional knowledge and making sure that anyone who's moving into a position is able to like access that larger resource bank almost of you know folks who have been in those positions for years Mm -hmm. Um, and oftentimes anyone taking on a new job even if it's a municipal job or a government job all of these things are so idiosyncratic and especially when it's you know something that has the weight of years and years and years of bureaucracy you really do need someone to sort of hold your hand so it'll be interesting seeing um, all of these folks sort of get their sea legs and where that puts grand county in terms of being able to sort of enact some of the more ambitious plans it has for the future maggie mcguire editor at the moab sun news Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces we mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.